Our Old Testament reading is from Leviticus, chapter 19. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie to one another. And you shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not defraud your neighbor. You shall not steal, and you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. You shall not revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 22. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. Good morning. Did you notice the title of the sermon today? Scripture. Just that, no biggie. It's all of scripture. Purpose of scripture. Um, the effect of scripture. Um, initially, when Chris and I were talking about the sermon series, I was like, oh, I'll totally take scripture. I love like scriptural literacy, Bible literacy. I think everyone needs to know maps. You know, I love maps. And I think all the whole entire story of scripture, I love it. And then I was thinking in one sermon, whoa, <laughs> like, and then all of a sudden, it was, it was a bigger thing than I was initially anticipating that it was going to be. And there are so many ways we could go with this, with something just big and broad, like scripture. The inspiration of scripture, the writing of scripture, the collection of it, the organizing, the editing, the history that is within it. Um, how scripture self-interprets itself, right? So there's all these things, but that is not what we're going to do. I am going to stay within the sermon series that Chris started for us last week. Um, so this time during Lent is a time when we're looking at practicing the way of Jesus. 
And Chris initiated this conversation by talking about the rules of life with Sabbath last week. Rules, not in doctrine, law, but rules, I think, Chris, you called it trellises on which we are building habits of a healthy life. And so what happens for us when scripture becomes the trellis on which we are building healthy habits? What does that mean for us as resurrection? And I think there are three really super easy ways to just initiate the conversation in terms of what is it that scripture is for us. Well, through scripture, we see God as the main character who is interacting consistently with his people, even as the generations keep changing and their context keeps changing. There is something very consistent about who God is, and we meet this God in scripture. We also see in scripture, and by this I mean not only the narratives, but the law, the poetry, the laments, the prophetic writings. In all of these other kinds of writings in scripture, we see the way that God's people are called to be transformed by who God is and to join with God in, um, his, in going after his purposes. But probably primarily in scripture, we see how the entirety of what God is doing points to Jesus. And in Jesus, we see the connection to the longevity of God's story. And in Jesus, we see this personified God's word, whose identity is being shaped by scripture and who is allowing his interactions to be shaped by scripture as well. So for us at Resurrection, why is it important for us to embrace this rule of life and scripture? Well, I wanted to bring up, um, I very recently had a conversation with a scholar. I interviewed her for my podcast. And she's an English professor, but we were talking about the role that scripture has in our lives. And she says that scripture, it's not even just scripture, she just said humans in general, we are story-shaped people. So that's very different from humans are people who love stories. We learn best through stories. We gravitate towards good stories, all of which is true. And all my friends in Hollywood are really big fans of saying it and phrasing it in that way. But it's not just that we love a good story. It's that we're shaped by the stories we consume. And so are we actually aware of the stories that are shaping us? Because there is always going to be a narrative out there that is going to tell us why you should be afraid, why you need to fight, what is it that makes you worthwhile in your relationships, what makes you successful, what makes you the hero of a story. Something out there is giving you the narratives where you're building your life into and you're shaping your life by. And so what is this story? And because we're talking story, I thought, well, I'm gonna go a little bit off how I normally do a sermon. And I'm actually going to tell you a portion of my story, which is super complicated. Like you don't wanna get all messy up in here, but I'll try to like keep it focused on the idea 
of my interaction with scripture and where did it go? You see, because I'm from the era of youth group conversations where there was great emphasis that was placed on quiet time. That was before the concept got really cool and they started calling it QT. I was in the quiet time era. And this came with the understanding of what you had to do during quiet time, which was not only just reading scripture and praying, but it was like a problem to be solved. You had to come to all the right conclusions. You needed to know what all the answers were so that you could answer any question anyone ever posed to you. The idea of quiet time for me, you know, if you were to hold it in your hands and ask, does this bring me joy? Thanks, Marie Kondo, yes. Otherwise, toss it. And I would say there was nothing about how people talked about quiet time as a marker of your Christianness. Nothing about that brought joy. Maybe it should have. I mean, I do believe that the study of scripture is the source of life. That's how scripture talks about itself. But in the way it was talked about in my context, it was the source of immense guilt and shame because no one could really live up to the expectations. So it took a while, but I went through the whole process of letting go of anything that I thought was very uh, Christian performative art. And so with that, I threw quiet time out the window, walked away from everything, church-related, Bible-related. There are two really important turning points for me in getting to the point, spoiler alert, I got back to scripture and I enjoy it again and I work at a church. So you know there's a progression in the story, right? But there were two critical moments to that. One of them was before I started going back to church again, I was standing out in a field, fists in the air, like literally fists in the air. God, prove yourself. Like how powerful can you actually be? And one of the only times that I had a moment of like, maybe something outside of myself is trying to communicate with me was a, I'm happy to show myself to you, Cindy, but it's up to you not to forget you don't get to be a cynic forever. Ooh, that's actually really hard, right? If any of you have ever been in the cynic's chair with me, it's a really easy chair to be in. Actually, it's a very comfortable chair to sit in. There's nothing about being in the chair of the cynic that makes you want to leave. From there, you can notice and you can name everything that's broken around you. The thing is, you just don't have the imagination to rebuild or to create or to bring life. It's just destruction around you. And I sat in that chair for a very long time, almost proud of the destruction that was around me. I did that, I tore it all down. I imagine in a room like this with people like us who come from all kinds of different circumstances, there's got to be a few of you here who fully understand what sitting in the chair of the cynic is really all about, which is fine. You're not alone. I think a lot of us understand what that is, but I do think, and I am more and more convinced that 
that the invitation that scripture gives us is to say, you're only partway through the journey. There's another portion of the journey that includes the rebuilding, the part that gives life. Like where is scripture reinfusing the love and the joy and the peace and the fulfillment in life? So this brings me to the second turning point, when scripture finally was that thing that started to bring joy and life into my life. And that was, I had very, very early, early days of kind of tiptoeing back to church. And someone who knew me well invited me to an adult Bible study and said, but don't worry, it won't be cheesy. There are maps and colored pencils. I was like, oh, okay, that can't be like squishy Christianity if it's like drawing on maps. And so I'm okay with that. But what I found is within this Bible study, within digging deep into the context, geographical and cultural context, we were all over the place in the Old Testament and New Testament. We were reading things and we were reading Psalms that are never going to show up in the responsive readings at the beginning of a sermon because they're just a little bit weird and uncomfortable. But we were reading them. And for the first time, I started thinking about how the people of Scripture were not theological lessons. They were real people. They didn't exist in isolation. They existed in community. They were in real places. God was interacting with them in real time. Their lives were just as complex as my life is. And I was watching how God was intervening in their life, asking them to change, but joining them in the process of change. And for the first time, I felt like I could breathe, that there was something beautiful and life-giving about what scripture was doing in even showing people how to have tricky emotions like anger and lament and sorrow and yes, also joy and rejoicing and worship. It was the first time that I started realizing that through the story of scripture, even in the law code, God is interacting with people and getting them to change for their own good. And so then you get amazing chapters like Leviticus chapter 19, which we read a portion of. Uh, if you are persistent enough in Leviticus, by the time you get to chapter 19, you've already heard a lot about the priests and about different sacrifices. But chapter 19 turns your attention to just the people of God. And I love the way that it starts because it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy. Insert why, question mark, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Right, so you are called to holiness, but only because God already is holy. And, and he's kind of coaching his people along the way to be more and more and more like him. And this whole enti entire chapter is all about what does that mean in family life? What does that mean in the worship you bring to the temple? What does that mean in community life? And it goes on beyond our portion, but even gets to the point down towards the bottom. You love your neighbor. Why? Because God is holy. And that's what God is doing. And so isn't that what you should be doing? 
As we move through scripture, we get Psalm 119, which we did do our responsive reading through. Um, And we didn't do all 176 verses of this psalm, but this is like one really long love poem towards God and the way that God trains his people to be holy. And so when it says, through your precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Everything you give me, I will swallow and ingest and become more like you. And through Psalm 119, it's not just, I love everything about you, God. There's this recognition that there are other voices, other stories, other things that need to be rejected in order to live fully in the life-giving nature of the laws and the instructions that God has given his people. Well, we talk about scripture as pointing towards Jesus. So what about Jesus? What does Jesus do with his scriptures, which by the way, are the Old Testament, just as an Old Testament scholar, I feel like I always have to tell everyone that, that Jesus loved the Old Testament, that he ingested, that he memorized, that he reinterpreted for his day those scriptures. How do we know this? Well, it was culturally appropriate Jewish communities loved and adored education. They loved and adored the communal aspect of study of scripture. So Jesus was just fulfilling what is culturally appropriate. But we see him turning over and turning over and turning over scripture in such a way that he can enter into conversation with those around him. How do we reinterpret this for our day? How does this tell us about the story of God and what God wants us to do? And so in the passage of which there were many we could have chosen from, we chose the passage where the teachers of the law come and ask Jesus, okay, so what's the greatest commandment? What is the greatest law? This happens several different times in the Bible. Exodus does this, Deuteronomy does this, several of the prophets do this. What is the bottom line? What is the ultimate, here we go, this is the thing that is of utmost importance. And Jesus responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is a quote from Deuteronomy, my favorite book. But he continues, right? There's more than just love God with everything you have but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's from Leviticus 19 that we read before. And so it's interesting to me, these two loves, because it's loving God, but if you love God, that isn't the only thing. It has to be coupled with and paired with loving people. And that is what scripture is about. Now, isn't that amazing? If love is the bottom line, if love is the greatest thing, Love over your intellectual prowess. Love over your physical fitness. Love over your political correctness. Love over your ability to know exactly right and wrong. Love as the basis. Isn't it amazing? Like if we could do that and ingest that as truth, how amazing would that really be? Well, This is going to come to maybe a third thing that was a changing point for me, a transformational point for me in learning to love scripture and find life and joy in scripture. 
And this is when it dawned on me, something that I always knew, but when I was thinking of scripture as always being a group text, in all of the history, in all of the scripture, in what we now call the Bible, all of that was written as a group text. And it was always studied as a community. And it was always studied and debated, maybe with people who were well-educated, rabbis, teachers of the law, people who had devoted their lives to it. But it was a community text where the community always had a voice. And when I look back at any of the time when scripture has been a life force in my own life, where life has, or scripture has been the most transformational for me, it was when I was in community with other people. So when I learned with Rabbi Moshe in Israel, who could go, yeah, but maybe turn your perspective just a little bit and see what else comes out of the text. When I was discussing with the other students who were around me, what their perspectives were. When I was even in PhD work and I'm doing thoughtful work with books, it was still in conversation with people way more brilliant than me. So it might look like I'm all on my own, but I was in conversation with all these other ideas. And most recently, it's been in the incredible conversations I've had with scholars for my podcast, because they come from so many different perspectives of life, and they constantly challenge me to re-examine my assumptions or to look into areas where I was blind. And that has given me so much joy in this life-giving force of scripture and what it can mean to be God's people and shaped by God's story instead of the stories that are around us everywhere. So when I say this, the study of scripture and community, I do want to say, is it possible for people just to pick up the Bible out of the blue and read it and the Holy Spirit illuminates things for them and maybe they're transformed into faith without conversation of anyone else around. Yes, I think scripture can do that because it is pretty amazing. But I also think that for a community, like our church community, there is something really important to be able to articulate, something that Deuteronomy tells the Israelites where it goes, you, the individuals in this room, you are responsible for examining scripture, for upholding what it is that God desires and what God wants. But y'all, all y'all in this room, together as a community, it is ours to hold. And it is ours to say, are we collectively being shaped by this story? so that we beyond this room are a people influencing the, the city that is around us. So God has given us scripture. I think together as a community, we steward the scripture that he gives us. And it is such a sweet invitation to us because we can look around and see all the things that are broken. And we must be aware of all the other narratives and all the stories that want us to react in cohesion with what those stories say. But I think we need to understand our story, the biblical story, so that we are responding, we are being shaped by this story 
to then be able to react in the world around us the way that God would want us to react. And so this invitation maybe comes in a lot of different ways, this invitation towards looking at scripture as a way that becomes a trellis on which we can build habits that are life-giving. One, for people who have done all of the deconstruction and are glad to be done with that, maybe start the examination process and the rebuilding process and the life-giving nature of what scripture is. And for others, if you're well along that journey, just keep going and keep taking people with you and keep entering into conversation that, so that we collectively are growing to be the story-shaped people of God. It is a baffling story. It is a beautiful story. It is magisterial in the depth of its artistry. It is a story that points its way towards Jesus, who becomes the embodied word of God. And Eugene Peterson, who would say things like, you are what you eat. When I think of what is the story that we're ingesting, and the invitation is to come to the table, to ingest, to accept, and to partake in the story that is the embodied life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then may it have the transformational effect so that when we leave here, we are making an impact on the world around us. Let's pray together. Holy God, I do love the long story of your involvement with humanity, of not staying above and beyond and distant, but trying to communicate and be involved and be present. The one who goes forth and saves and redeems his people and only after asks for them to be all in on the story to the point where they can accept your imagination. They can be transformed by your imagination of how good it can be. The necessity for them to change, for us to change, in order to get closer and closer to embodying the world that you imagine, that is full of beauty and life and art and joy. May we learn to ingest your story in the weeks to come. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.